Whether it's a two-week vacation, a semester studying abroad, or a chapter a night before bed, travel can be a powerful force in your life. Everybody loves to travel, if not physically and really, then in their dreams, in their armchairs, in their minds. People just love the thought of striking out and finding adventure. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Best-selling author Patricia Schultz joins us today on Travel with Rick Steves to explain why the more she travels, the more she's convinced that we all need to get out and see our world. For actor Andrew McCarthy, exploring his ancestors' stomping grounds in Ireland changed his life. I found myself in tune and in sync with myself in a way I hadn't ever been before, and I felt like myself from the toes up. While for Ava Marie Everson, a trip to the Holy Land breathes life into her faith. There is a tomb, and you can see the place where the stone would have been rolled in front of the cave. Stay with us for the hour ahead as we stoke our appetites for exploring our world. It's Travel with Rick Steves. A couple of weeks ago on Travel with Rick Steves, we heard from a European comedian who had had a life-changing experience walking the Pilgrim's Trail to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. Coming up in the hour ahead, another entertainer, actor Andrew McCarthy, tells us what happened to him during his own long hike down that same medieval trail, and also why Ireland is now his second home. Also, Patricia Schultz has just updated her bestseller A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. She joins us today to tell us what's changed in the book and how her latest travels have actually changed her. We'll start with an Easter observance in Israel. Ava Marie Everson is an American Christian who teamed up with an American-born Israeli Jew to write a guide for religious-themed travels to the Holy Land. Their book is called Reflections of God's Holy Land, and it comes with personal insights and photos pegged to specific sites referred to in the Old and New Testaments. Ava, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rick. What does that mean to you when when you think that people would say the Holy Land is like the fifth gospel? Oh, that just makes my heart flutter. Uh, just such a beautiful thing to say. And it's so true. When you're there, you hear God's heartbeat and you feel his breath on your face. So I definitely can relate to that. Well, get a little more concrete with me, if they had concrete back then. Uh, specifically, where, where would you be where you most vividly feel biblical times and where sitting there and reading the Bible really uh, makes more sense? Everywhere. I mean, seriously, everywhere. Obviously, there are modern cities in Israel, and there are places that are more modern <laughs> than others. But everywhere you go, uh, you have the opportunity to see the landscape and to imagine it as it was and to see evidences of the stories that you grew up or that you're just learning for the first time. Now, I love the way you've designed your book. First, there's a scripture, and then there's a photo, and then there's the sort of factual rundown called Did You Know?, and then there's Reflections. Those little bite-sized chapters are easy to absorb and thought-provoking. I'm going to give you a, a little series of places in the Holy Land, and what I'd like you to do is just limit it to a few sentences, but you tell me why these places are meaningful for a Christian pilgrim or, or somebody going there on a journey of faith. Let's talk about the Dead Sea. Ah. Oh. I love the Dead Sea. The thing for me about the Dead Sea is that when you're sitting there, behind you are the Judean mountains, and in front of you are the Jordanian mountains. And what I was reminded of when I was sitting there was that this is the lowest place on earth, and it's the saltiest water in the world. And I thought about that scripture that says that God holds our tears in vials in heaven, We come over giant mountains, wonderful experiences in our lives, and then we we hit a low in our lives. Something happens to make us sad or to knock the wind out of our sails, and, and we cry, and we feel like we really are at the lowest place on earth. But if we just look ahead, there's another mountain. That's what I loved about the Dead Sea. Talk about the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. The Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem is a place where you can go and reflect on the birth of Christ. One of the things for me was remembering that it's geography and that Christ was born in my heart. But to reflect on what it must have been like for this young woman 
who was coming into a, a village that she probably wasn't familiar with and suddenly thrust into uh, an experience she was not familiar with, but how God used that, and her whole life changed. So it helps you connect with Mary and, and I her really, position. Yeah, yeah, when I think of Bethlehem, I connect more with Mary right. than I actually do okay. with Jesus. And then talk to me about the Via Dolorosa. Well, that certainly is an experience, and it's one that it takes uh, a lot of time. This is the road that Jesus climbed with the cross on his back after he was condemned to go up to the hill of Golgotha, right? That's correct. And in Jerusalem today, it even begins before that. It begins at the place where he would have gone into the house of uh, Herod and Caiaphas and the different paths that he would have walked from the time of his arrest until his death. It's something that you take very slowly. You cannot take it all in the first time. Now, you've got pilgrims here from all over Christendom that are literally stopping at the stations of the cross. I mean, Mm -hmm. you've got them duplicated all over Christendom, but here you actually have, what is it, 12 or 13 stations of the cross. Yeah, I think it's uh, either uh, 12 to 14. Now, what I I learned, Ava, from your book is that the Via Della Rosa is not out in the countryside. The whole Roman style of justice was you condemn somebody and then you, you make it very public. And the right. Via Della Rosa was right in the middle of the town. And the whole idea was to parade the criminal past all the citizens on the way to his execution. Right. And through the marketplace. And today, you still walk through the marketplace. You get that sense of what it would have been like, uh, people turning and staring. Now, he ended up on Golgotha, the place of the skull. But today, that is marked by the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Right. There's a little bit of, uh, oh, no, it was over here. No, it was over here. If you walk the traditional Via Dolorosa, then you do end up in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. If you walk outside the Damascus Gate, then you can see what appears to be a skull on the side of a hill, which is closer to what is known as the Garden Tomb. So you can get sidetracked on, uh, you know, specifically where was it, but that sort of pollutes the whole experience, I, I would It imagine. really does. It really does. Because when you talk about the Garden Tomb, isn't there some discussion over where was the uh, roll away the stone tomb? Well, in in the garden tomb, there is a tomb, and you can see the place where the stone would have been rolled in front of the cave. The actual Um, spot. Yes. You know, the bottom line is, is whether it's in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or it's in the garden tomb, there are no bones. There is no body. And that's what we celebrate. Well, that's the whole idea, the resurrection. That's right. And that's, that's Easter. That's right. I'm talking with Eva Marie Everson, the uh, author of Reflections of God's Holy Land, A Personal Journey Through Israel. Now, Eva, you co-authored this with a Jewish friend, uh, Miriam Feinberg-Vamush. Your book is really quite a devotional book for Christians. How did Miriam's contribution affect your work? Uh, In the most positive of ways. First of all, Miriam understands the Jewish faith, obviously, and the traditions, the history of a people that Jesus was born into. And so, of course, the root of our faith is the Jewish faith. We chose not to argue about the one thing that we don't agree on, but instead to focus on the many, many things that we do agree on. Miriam has been leading Christian tours for over 30 years, and we laugh because I have been a teacher of Old Testament theology for a lot of years, and she says that I know her scriptures better than she does, and I have to admit she knows my scriptures (laughs) better than I do. So first of all, we could all guess, but tell me, what is the main difference between your understanding of God and Miriam's understanding of God? Oh, when it comes to the understanding of God, very, very little. Um, Between the Jewish faith and the Christian faith, we just don't agree on whether or not Jesus was Messiah. For Miriam and myself, just the way that we handled it with each other, there was an afternoon we were in a church, and it was obviously very ancient. We were looking at these fabulous paintings that went all the way around the room of the sanctuary. And it started with the depiction of, of Gabriel coming to Mary and telling Mary, you know, you, you will be the mother of God and all the way to the ascension. And as I'm walking around and Miriam's two or three paintings ahead of me, I, I looked at her and I said, you know, Miriam, I, I, I don't understand why your people don't recognize that he was Messiah. And, and she looked at me and she said, what are you saying, Eva? And I said, well, he's the guy with the halo over his head. And of course, we just laughed, you know, (laughs) because there's so much love and there's so much respect between the two of us. And I tell you, honestly, as a Christian, that until you understand your Jewish roots, 
that that really you're you're coming at it like the glass is half full because once you understand that it it just brings it to life well, give me one practical way that your jewish friend helped you better appreciate the holy land as a christian oh my goodness just one <laughs> just one um first of all everything that jesus did was based on his judaism and everything that he did that we celebrate today was around the Jewish feasts and festivals. Mm-hmm. So understanding some of those, so the those feasts and festivals better helps us to understand more what Jesus was doing. Probably one of my bigger moments was understanding better the Seder meal, which would have been the Last Supper as we celebrate mm-hmm. it, and then understanding the tradition of the Jewish bride and bridegroom and how that relates to what Jesus was saying to his disciples about being the bridegroom. There are so many aha moments. I remember the first time I was there, I started to laugh at how many times I went, oh, (laughs) yeah, because it made so much more sense after seeing it. One of the things that really stunned me when you're on the edge of the Judean desert and the wilderness itself I always pictured it as being flat. When I think of desert, I think it's flat. And this is brutal and rugged and harsh. And they're, the mountains of packed sand are higher than you can possibly imagine. And when you picture Jesus walking out into that versus just walking out into a flat land, and then you think about 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, suddenly it takes on a whole new meaning. So for me, that was a that was a huge moment being out in the Galilee when winds and waves actually started to pick up and realizing just how tumultuous that moment was for the disciples. So much more you know, telling than just reading about it in a book. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Ava Marie Everson. Her book is Reflections of God's Holy Land. Ava, fascinating conversation. What an inspiration to go to the Holy Land as a kind of a pilgrimage to better understand and get closer to God, whether it's uh, as a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew or somebody who just has a feeling for their creator. Absolutely. A trip to the Holy Land will change your life. I can tell you it changed my life, and I have never met a single person before, during, or after my trips to Israel that did not say the same. A visit to Israel changes your life. It changes your perception of God, and it changes your perception of your relationship with Him. And if you can go with the uh, help of a book that organizes your thoughts and gives you a context, like the book you've written, I think that makes it even more meaningful. Again, Ava Marie Everson, author of Reflections of God's Holy Land, thanks so much and best wishes. Thank you so much. Next, Patricia Schultz updates the thousand places she wants us to see in our lifetime. And later, Andrew McCarthy tells us how travels to Spain and Ireland have changed his life. We're at 877-333-RICK. People are into bucket lists these days. Everybody wants to embrace life and live it to the fullest, and that's probably why probably the best-selling guidebook of the last few years has been A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. It's out in a new second edition, and we're joined by Patricia Schultz to talk about her book. 
Patricia, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Rick. Now, your first edition of Thousand Places to See Before You Die from 2003, it just went wild. Did it exceed your expectations? Oh, my gosh. Oh, in ways I can't even explain. And to this day, it's a kind of pinch me thing. Um, I suppose, really, I just wanted to know that a couple hundred people would buy it and embrace it and love it and use it. So as soon as we were over the thousand point mark, I was elated. And we have continued to be so. I think we're now way over three million. It just confirms to me, really, that what I've always known, um, what I see at every dinner party, you know, I strike up conversations with people on the bus. Everybody loves to travel, if not physically and really, then in their dreams, in their armchairs, in their minds. People just love the thought of removing themselves from the day-to-day stuff and striking out and finding adventure. You know, I would imagine this book did a lot better coming out now than had it come out 15 or 20 years ago. Have you thought about that much? There's just sort of a, it really struck a chord with people. It did. And not just in our language, but in, like, I think it's been translated into 20 or 25 languages. Yeah, 26 languages, another thing that always knocked me off my chair to know that it wasn't just, you know, an American thing, but that people everywhere in the world love to travel. You know, it's funny, I never thought about it coming out in another era and another generation. What I always thought about was when it came out in 2003, it was just almost minutes, really, when you think about it after 2001, September 11th, when everybody stayed very close to home and there was this idea that Americans would never travel again. And that was the case um, for the duration of 2001, 2002. Mm -hmm. And when it came out in 2003, people were just just starting to Mm -hmm. really feel comfortable again. And that was always something that I I thought about. Had it come out a year, two, or three earlier than that, how would it have fared? But I don't know. You're you're right. If it had come out in the 70s or 80s, people – I was just talking to somebody yesterday. Their children are doing, you know, this gap year. And – in my day and age, it was a big thing to do the London, Paris, Rome grand tour. And now kids younger, you know, in their 20s and even in their late teens are traveling independently and going to places everywhere in the world in Southeast Asia and the subcontinent and all throughout South America in ways and in numbers that I never saw when I was just out of school. Oh, it's amazing. Well, people are expecting more out of life, and they're expecting more out of their travels, and the world is accessible now. I mean, it used to be a big deal to cross the Atlantic, and now people do that for a long weekend, and uh, the world is accessible. You wrote this book back in 2003, and in the decade that's passed, what are the changes you've seen, and how's the book different, and why did you bring out a new edition? Well, the nature of the beast with any travel book is that, you know, no sooner is it on the shelf than is it dated. And so the book itself, a lot of the kind of brass tacks, nuts and bolts, telephones, prices, et cetera, that we include after each entry, that was all, um, of course, very dated, although we had updated it. But it was also just the mix of places and the um, choice, the list of places that I felt could be expanded upon and embellished and changed. Uh, There are so many places that weren't comfortable or available or open to tourism or welcoming to tourism, which are now and immediately, of course, I think of all of the former Soviet bloc countries, which when I was researching in the, the late 90s, were just, just, just really trying to understand how to take advantage of suddenly this huge number of people that wanted to come and experience Romania, Hungary, um, Ukraine, Georgia. So um, for me, it was a priority to include all of those areas in Eastern and Central Europe, which weren't included in the first book or which weren't included substantially in the first book. And also in the um, Balkans, the former Yugoslavian countries, and Colombia. I mean, there was such a horrific drug war going on that it wasn't a conventional war, but it was not on the average radar. So not only did I want to reflect all of the countries which certainly should be experienced before you die, and in a way now much more comfortably and accessibly. But then I looked at me. You know, it's not just about the destinations, but it's about the author, because I've changed, as has everybody, I think, in the last eight years. And the way I travel is very different, and what interests me is different. And the beauty of this book, I think, is that it's just one person's voice. You know, I'm not a team. I'm not Foders or Fromers or the other great... um, I was going to ask you about that. When I look at this book, it's a brick, and it says, by Patricia Schultz. 
you know, my beat is Europe, and that's tough for me to cover with my team. You're covering mm-hmm. the entire world. Uh, did you actually go to these places? I mean, there's 200 new entries in this book since 2003. You must spend a lot of time on the road. Oh, I do. And to answer your question, have I been to all of these places? Because it is the burning question. And people are always kind of sheepish when they ask me because they know I get it all the time. Have you been to every one of them? And first of all, as you know probably better than almost anyone else, you'd need to be 400 years old right. in order to say yeah. that, yes, you. because then you have to think of all of the thousands that you've been to that don't make the cut, you know, mm. all the frogs you have to kiss that weren't quite, you know, that didn't kind of match up to your expectations. So I've been to, I think, probably 70 or 80 percent of them. I, I, you know, I need to sit down with a pen and check off my own list. But um, I'm a great researcher as well. And there are so many places that you just know from your gut belong in the book, even though you may not have yet made it there yourself. And additionally, with the revision, I called in a whole wonderful, wonderful network of colleagues and family and friends and people who live in areas of the world that I don't know very well or who specialize as travel writers in those particular regions. And, you know, I picked brains. We were back and forth. We brainstormed. And finally, together, we finalized this list, which ultimately became the revision of the book. I know whenever you make a list of something, there are people who are passionate about a certain place that didn't make the list, and they'll advocate Mm -hmm. for that place. You must have got a lot of feedback. How does feedback shape your new listing, and and what's an example of a place you added because of feedback? A lot of people, I think, are accustomed to seeing guides or themselves firmly believe that it should be a more diplomatic choice balanced Mm -hmm. um, to the nth degree, so that places like, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, should be represented in the book, maybe because in a more peaceful time, they very much deserve to be so. But I haven't been, and I don't pretend to be. And there are so many areas that are just so much more likely to be visited by Americans that, no, I didn't include them. So Mm -hmm. I'm always interested And, you know, all of the forums like TripAdvisor and Amazon.com, I'm always hearing, if not immediately from people after events where I speak, people are always asking me, why didn't you include A, B, and C? Mm -hmm. Um, I had people Mm -hmm. come up to me after one show and go on and on and on about the wonders of Ukraine. Uh, They were Ukrainian born and had immigrated to the States at a very young age. So um, that, after much research and not having visited, it's on my own short list, that 20 person I haven't visited yet. That made um, the revision because it woke up in me this, I was kind of lax in my knowledge or limited in my awareness of the wonders of the Ukraine. I would now love to go. It's on my list of maybe the next, you know, trip or five or ten. People came to me about Nicaragua. So the next time I was in Costa Rica, we crossed over very easily the border into Nicaragua. And you find a place that's really has all of the beauty of Costa Rica that's far less developed or commercialized and much less expensive. And so that made the book. So, yeah, I always listen. I mean, I'd be crazy not to. And just, you know, as an individual, personally, I I always like to hear other people's Mm -hmm. travels because everybody loves to share their journeys. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Patricia Schultz and the second edition of her blockbuster hit, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, is out in the bookstores. Patricia was just talking about Nicaragua, and Jan is on the phone from Walnut Creek in California with a comment or question about Nicaragua, I believe. Jan, thanks for joining us. Yes, I'm very, very interested in Nicaragua. While I have traveled there before, I haven't done any of the more exotic, like, jungle adventures. Can you comment on that or direct us towards something that might be interesting and also safe? I found Nicaragua extremely safe, but there's just something of an edge there because I believe it has yet to receive the the vast numbers that its cousin Costa Rica is receiving from North America, from the U.S. But one of the big surprises to me were the islands off the coast. I'm a real island person, although I'm not one to just lounge under an umbrella for hours on end. But the Corn Islands which are just off the coast of Nicaragua, you find a kind of 1970s hippy-dippy vibe that was a little much of a turnoff to me until you realize that the whole island pace, the very unaffected, unpretentious, inexpensive, welcoming family-run B&Bs, the beautiful, empty, gorgeous beaches— 
and being able to get a great lobster dinner. They're famous for their lobster for some reason for three, four, five dollars, an incredible, you know, piña colada or margarita for a dollar. Everything reminded me of the Caribbean or the West Caribbean of 20, 30 years ago. Uh, there's only a handful of places to stay. There's the Big Corn Island and Little Corn Island. They go by their English name. I don't really know why, but that was a great surprise to me. I didn't even really know they existed. Um, and also there are old colonial towns like Granada and Leon, which are spectacular. Again, without the veneer or the commercial polish that you'll find in Costa Rica, but very special for that very reason. Interesting. And the Corn Islands is a good tip. Thank you for that. Oh, thank you. You'll enjoy them. Thanks for your call, Jan. Patricia, I was just in Managua, and I I love Nicaragua, but I felt unsafe in Managua because of all the crime in the streets and and the gangs and stuff like that. Did you go into Managua at all, or did you go directly to Granada? Yeah, we went directly to Granada because we came up from Costa Rica. Um, We had heard from friends of ours living in Costa Rica that there is that element of perhaps risk but they also told us that about um, Nicaragua, where we didn't feel it at all one bit. And I think some of that is just friendly neighbor rivalry. Mm. They were so um, loyal and enamored of their newfound second home that they had uh, been living in Costa Rica for the last 10 years. So I, I don't know to what degree it's true. Always in the, the big cities, you feel that much more than you do in the countries generally, yeah. I think, anywhere in the world. Patrick's on the phone in Indiantown, Florida. Patrick, thanks for your call. Yes, I've read the book and I really enjoyed it. I just, I love this sort of thing and looking to see what to see in every place. For years, our family lived in Tunisia. And one of the interesting things to see there is the Tophet out in Carthage, which is a very ancient area north of the city of Tunis. I'm sorry, the Tulsit, what is that? Yeah, it's, it's a burial ground. It goes back to the time of Hannibal. During that time, they used to have actual child sacrifices out there. It has to do with the same thing you read in the Bible and also in Livy among the Romans, of the fact that they didn't like the Carthaginians because they were doing these very cruel things in their worship. You know, I've been to um, Carthage on our way to Sidi Bou Said, this kind of postcard-perfect little blue-and-white town up on a cliff overlooking the water, that has become almost like a suburb now of Tunis. It's so close. And um, we did stop at Carthage. I don't remember, I am sorry to say, I don't remember yeah. um, anything that you're describing, but it does sound pretty remarkable. Yeah, this is, if you went to where the port is in Carthage, it's just right down the street from there. And it's definitely more interesting than the port or the little aquarium that, that's there. And you could go on the TGM, which is a train that goes out to City Saeed. You can drop by there. But it's definitely worth seeing the baths also in Carthage. So, Patrick, kind of did, interesting. Patrick, did you enjoy going to Tunis just in general? Was it a worthwhile place to visit? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of nice things to do, especially seeing some of the Arab areas in the old cities and things like this. And also the Bardo Museum, which is mentioned hmm. in your book, is very interesting. In a thousand Great. places to Roman see before you thing. die. I've got a lot of friends yeah. in uh, Italy that have vacation homes in Tunisia. And they... Yeah, there's a big Italian community there. Right. Patrick, thanks for your call. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Take care. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're joined by Patricia Schultz, the author of A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, and the second edition is out. So we're joining Patricia and seeing what's new. Patricia, critical for your travel fun, I think, is to maximize the experiences. And you talk about this in your book. It's not just a list of monuments, but actual experiences. For instance, you could go to Port-au-Prince in Haiti and uh, have one experience or another, depending on if you check out the Voodoo Nights. Tell us about that. Oh, that was pretty remarkable. I've been wanting to go to Haiti since forever, and I can't tell you how many people have said, what are you, out of your mind? Um, We went just before the earthquake. Um, I haven't been since. My heart goes out to Haiti. What a beautiful part of the island of Hispaniola, of course, the other half or the other part belonging to the Dominican Republic. Just wonderful people, and they all really go to town Thursday nights at the Hotel Olufsen which is owned by um, a fellow, I think he's American or American-Haitian. Anyway, Thursday, and you're welcomed as an outsider, as a visitor, as a non-Voodoo practicing Christian in my case, 
And there's music. They get into their trance. There's a lot of rum being imbibed. They get、um, very much into this zone that is maybe not as intimate and as special as if you were to go into their. Their places of worship, but the fact that it's、um, a bar, restaurant, hotel that every Thursday night is, you know, flung wide open to the public, just made it very remarkable to me. And it's a real insight. It's very much a eye-opening memory about the essence and the religion and the、um, the very soul of Haiti that will stay with you forever. You have a wonderful quote. You can't have a narrow mind and a fat passport. So, how has travel impacted your your worldview and your politics? Then, oh,、uh, you know, how has it not impacted me on every imaginable level and every dimension of my soul and my heart? I think it just opens you, and I think at the end of it all, it makes you a better person. It makes you more aware of global situations and politics. I think. Everybody should travel more. Our politicians should travel more. We should bring our children along more readily, early on through their teens. Make them travel. Everybody should do a junior year abroad if at all possible. I think. But specifically, why should a politician travel? Well, you know, we all remember well that George Bush perhaps didn't. I don't know. Is it true he didn't have his passport when he was inaugurated as president? You know, I was lucky enough to visit Syria two years ago before things fell apart. And、um, to talk to the people and to realize that they are not their government, they don't believe in a lot of what their governments are doing and saying and proposing and implementing, and just to see the world and its people in their context,、mm. and to understand there are no sweeping generalizations, and you can't be just Arab or Muslim or Christian or Orthodox or white or black or purple or striped. I mean, people are individuals, and each. Experience in their home, where you are a visitor, opens you up to their reality, and you don't get that back at home in the classroom. You just don't. You said it right there. Very good reason to pick up a thousand places to see before you die and and see a lot of them while you still got a chance. Patricia Schultz, you've gained a lot of、uh, wisdom and a, and a real empathy for this planet through your travels. Thanks so much for your work and best wishes. Oh, thank you very much, Rick. They called me a dreamer. Well, maybe I am, but I know that I'm longing to see those faraway places where the strange-sounding names calling, calling me, calling, calling me. Actor turned travel writer Andrew McCarthy joins us next with his own example of life-altering travels from the venerable Camino de Santiago in Spain to finding a second home in the land of his ancestors in Ireland. We're glad you could join us on Travel with Rick Steves. Mountain land of history, Duinduado Gumri, Duintethia Ever Rick Steves. I'm Martin Lavandovich, and I come from Wales, and I travel with Rick Steves. So, give me the polite words in Welsh, because when you go to Wales, you should at least know the please, thank you, and、uh, here's to your health, right? Yeah, well, unfortunately, they're, they're difficult ones.、Uh, please is asquelchanda. Wow, asquelchanal. Asquelchanda. Thank you is diolchanvaur. Boy, oh boy. I know, I know, I know. Good morning is borida. Good day is well, we'd say borida or plounda, depending on what part of the day. And if you're going to toast to somebody in a pub, yachida. Yachida. So yachida is the key word when you're in a pub、yeah. in Wales. Count to ten in Welsh. In day three, Pedwar Pint Hwech Saith Wyth Naw Dek. Wow. If all the world's a stage, then Andrew McCarthy is certainly enjoying the view. He's known as one of the young brat pack of actors who starred in those 1980s movies such as Pretty in Pink, Saint Elmo's Fire, and Weekend at Bernie's. He also writes on travel topics for a number of major publications, and he's the editor at large for National Geographic Traveler. The Society of American Travel Writers awarded Andrew the Lowell Thomas Prize as Travel Journalist of the Year in 2010, and he got the Silver Prize for his writing in 2011. Andrew joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to discuss the craft of travel writing and to let us in on where he's been traveling lately. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. Nice to be here. You know, 
I don't know of any other movie star that became a travel writer. I, I, I can't <laughs> imagine the pay is anywhere near as good. How did this happen and why? Yeah, I fell into this completely backwards, didn't I? Yeah. You know, I mean, as an actor, you, you travel a lot. I mean, I started to see the world because I was an actor. I went places solely because I was working there, to Europe, to South America, all over America, to go make movies. And it started to intrigue me going around the world. And then I started to find the travel changed my place in the world and how I felt in the world. And it just became something I started to do for its own sake, aside from work. And then it took on a life of its own. It's a big change to go from all the glitter and everything of being in Hollywood and so on and then hiking the Community Santiago. I mean, I read that beautiful thing you wrote about the, the Camino. Apparently that was, uh, had an impact on you. Yeah, I had read, actually, I read a book about this fellow who walked the Camino de Santiago, and I had never heard of it, this ancient pilgrim's route across the north of Spain for 500 miles, where you just get a backpack and walk across the country. And I thought this sounded insane. And something in it appealed to me, and I just got on a plane, and I did it. You know, it was the first big trip that I took on my own independently without having been associated with any movie or any work or anything. And it really, the day-by-day walking, the trudging across Spain, I found misery. And then one day something happened. I had the breakdown that people always talk about having right before that moment of euphoria happened where I was on my knees in a a field of wheat, weeping and screaming up at the heavens. And then suddenly something happened and I, I found myself in tune and in sync with myself and in my environment in a way I hadn't ever been before. And I finished my next two, three weeks of the walk in this state, you know, I felt like myself from the toes up, is what I like to say. It really started to change my life and my place in the world. And I became aware that travel, as you will know, travel can really start to transform us and change who we are in the world. I I think it obliterated a lot of the fear that I carried into the world. I think travel does that. I think travel just obliterates fear. There's no room to be afraid when you're traveling because you need to get your needs met. You need to ask where you can sleep, where you can eat. You know, Mark Twain has that great line, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. I think travel transforms us, and that's what happened to me when I started to travel, when I started to walk the Camino. And so I just kept going after that. I liked the way I felt. I said, I want more. And that's what happened. Were you in some sort of a personal struggle there from a very commercial and materialistic and marketing kind of world uh, that I would imagine comes with New York and Hollywood and all that? And then... People that are in the middle of nowhere with just a little rucksack on their back walking 500 miles, did you set out because you felt you needed to be reoriented or... Well, I don't know. I mean, in hindsight, I suppose you can say all those kind of things. My life was just fine. I was just moseying along. But something in it spoke to me that said, I need I need a good long walk, <laughs> you know. And I think just the rhythm of walking changes and yeah. settles us down in a way. Early on, I became successful in the movies as a young guy, 20 years old and sort of hit the ground running, as it were, and it was time, without knowing that's what I was doing, just to sort of stop and have a little time to think. Were you mostly alone uh, when you did the walk, or were you going I was. I was. You know, there are a lot of people walking it, and you can walk in groups and walk alone. I went alone, and I preferred to walk alone. I liked meeting people in the evening to have dinner and all that kind of stuff, but I, I found that I preferred that. I liked the space in my own mind. I just watched The Way with Martin Sheen. And, and yeah, it's did, a nice movie, it's isn't a it? a great movie. And yeah. I was thinking, halfway through the movie, I was thinking, I hope he dumps those people that he's hanging out with because I want him to have a real personal experience. And as it turned out, he stayed with those people, and they were a quirky little gang of people that were all different. And it was a rich experience in part thanks to them, but it's a big decision. Are you going to meet some friends and enjoy the camaraderie all along the way? Or are you really going to be all alone in that field in the vastness of northern Spain? And you had a, a little bit of both then. Yeah, I mean, I think for the movie, it's hard to dramatize someone alone in their head so the other people were necessary. And most of the people walking the Camino preferred to do it in company, you know. Mm-hmm. But I really gravitated toward being alone. I love to travel alone. I think it's a wonderful, rich way to spend time. You can't be wasting time by traveling alone in my mind. You know, and you actively have to seek out being alone in this world nowadays. So I did that when I walked, and for me, it was the right thing to do. I like to, it's odd for me because I always have my birthday alone, almost always, and I'm in Europe, and it's just kind of, it's thought-provoking. You're you're more open to things when you're alone. I love when you wrote about when you ate the jamón on the Camino. It was like you had finally arrived in Spain. Yeah, it's funny. I'm not a big foodie. You know, I don't live to eat. eat to live, but there are moments when occasionally a meal will just, something about it, you know, when you eat with someone too, particularly, 
your relationship changes. And I think I was eating that meal alone you're talking about in this restaurant that was closed, and this man was generous enough to just to feed me because I was starving. And he saw that, and he saw I was in need, and he reached out. I love it. Andrew McCarthy, out there starving, and all you want is a crunchy piece of bread and a piece of hamon <laughs> in a restaurant that'll just be open a little longer so you can deal with the hunger in your stomach. And those are the moments that are memorable when we travel, for sure. And this man fed me, and... I'll remember him my whole life. You know, it was that, that was a real moment. You know, you never know what these moments are going to be when you're traveling. What you think will be memorable usually isn't, and it's these small details and kindnesses usually that lodge deep inside and really have a profound effect on who we are. That was one for me. And the irony is you can't really book those in advance. You can't necessarily assure that you'll get them because you've got more money and power. You have to open yourself up to the road. No, I find actually the more money I spend traveling, the fancier hotel I stay in, the more insulated I am from the place I'm in, the more difficult it is to have an authentic experience of a place, for sure. I'll have a wonderful experience of whatever hotel I'm in, but that's not particularly the experience of the place. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Andrew McCarthy, uh, well-known as a director and movie star, and also now well-known as a travel writer, and we're talking about experiencing the road. Andrew, when you're out writing, are you working on a, like a, a gig for a magazine or something? Are you on a mission, or are you just kind of uh, jotting random notes and seeing what you come up with? Well, that's how I started, was by just sort of jotting notes down. I started to try and keep a diary on the road, and I realized I, what would I, I just sit there and wrote about my feelings, and I was embarrassed to read these things to myself. So I started just writing little scenes of encounters I had along the road, because I'm an actor. That's what I know, is scenes and dialogue and encounters. So I would write these little moments that captured my experience of a place. And that's how my writing started, and I just sort of followed that a bit. And now often, you know, if I'm out writing for a magazine, I'll arrive with an intent and with a story in mind that I'm going to explore. Particularly if I'm for a magazine, I don't just wander in and show up and see what happens. I think that's a little dangerous. Now that you won the um, Old Thomas Travel Journalist of the Year Award, I would imagine more magazines were coming to you for work? Yeah, it's a lot easier now. I don't have to pitch near as much. They go, yeah. wait, the guy from Pretty and... Pink wants to write for my magazine, huh? Ah, you've <laughs> so got an advantage. Now, it's, much, uh, it's become an asset as opposed to a curious liability. Right, yeah. because you've got the credentials as a travel writer. I'm legitimized, you know. Where have you been lately uh, in your work as a travel writer? I was to Mozambique recently, which I thought was very interesting. I loved Mozambique. It's really a uh, place that's coming back. I was in Ireland recently, where I, I go often and I love. And I was just down in Costa Rica not too long ago. I was down in the Amazon. I was down in Patagonia, which I love. Loved Patagonia. And I was in Vienna recently. Oh, I love all those places. The Amazon. What was the Amazon like? I've been to the Amazon twice now. I was Years ago, I was acting in a film down in Brazil, and I went up to the Amazon afterward, and I bought a hammock and just threw it on one of those boats that ply the river like a, mm. like a bus. And I just slept on a hammock for a week going down the river. And then recently, I was writing an article for a newspaper and was on one of those very plush river cruises that was quite uh, quite nice. But again, I think I preferred being in the hammock. Huh, My nice. back hurt more, but I had a much more memorable experience. That was 10 years ago, and I remember it more vividly than the nice cushy cruise I was on. Could you still do the hammock now? Nah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, isn't it? When you get a little older and you, can, you, want to yeah. have a, you want to have a safe place to leave your laptop, but you still want to have yeah. that uh, under the stars kind of experience. It's a little bit of a challenge. It is. It's true, isn't it? Someone once said, I, I heard this advice, while you're young and without thinking about it too much, see as much of the world as you possibly can, one day it will be too late. And I think to some degree it's true. You know, that's brilliant. I still draw on experiences I had when I was, you know, in my 20s. And Absolutely. I'm a big fan of the gap year. You know, I, think, <laughs> I do. I think it's a great education for people. Oh, yeah. You know, I draw on the experiences my children are having. When I read their blog about South America, I just thought, I couldn't do that now. And I can be inspired by them. And I'm sure glad I did what I could when I was that age. Not that we can't have a lot of fun in whatever decade we're going through. You mentioned, Andrew, that you enjoyed Ireland. And reading your piece on Ireland, I felt like you have a real affinity for Ireland. Uh, is that because your, your ancestors are from Ireland, do you think? I suppose it is. I have no idea. I first landed in Ireland back in, I think, 86 when I was a, you know, a young guy. And the second I got there, I remember getting off the plane and I kissed the tarmac. I don't know why. I had no idea. But instantly I felt at home there in a way that I didn't even feel at home in New York. And I returned every year for about a decade. And then I didn't go for a long time. And then I ended up meeting an Irish woman and marrying her. And we have a home now in Ireland, so we go a lot. 
But it's one of those places, and I think when you travel, you find them where you just, for some reason that you can't explain, mm. you feel comfortable there, and you feel at home. You feel like you're understood there. Well, I, there's something about your, your heritage, your ethnicity. I mean, I, I knew that when I'm in Norway, where my relatives are all from. And I remember being in Sweden thinking, yeah, I'm in Scandinavia. These are my people. And then I crossed the border into Norway, and it was, whoa, no, these are my people. I mean, even that <laughs> little subtle difference, when I crossed the border into Norway, it was home. And it was kind of like you kissing the ground in Ireland for the first time. Yeah, that does capture it all, doesn't it? Interesting. I love what you, uh, you had a quite a, a nice experience in the bleak west, the burren. What was the famous... Uh, quote from Cromwellian times. There's not enough water to drown a man, there's not enough wood to hang him, and there's not enough earth to bury him. And then you walk through the burn and you realize, well, the population used to be much bigger, they've suffered the famine, they've been under the thumb of the British for so long, and now they've had their tumultuous 20th century, and then they had their great tiger economy, and then now it's uh, tough times again economically for the Irish, but you meet the people, salt of the earth, it just becomes a rich experience. Talk about Farmer Shane that you walked around with. Oh, Shane. You know, there are millions of these guys in, in Ireland. I walked the burn with Shane. He was just a fellow I met in a pub, you know, and I said, I want to go out into the burn. He goes, ah, sure, I'll take you. And so we just, he took me out and he told me, you know, the Irish are great because all you have to do is say hello and they just start talking. And then they're going to tell you legacy and history of their family. And then they'll somehow tie it into yours. And by the time the conversation is over, you will be related somehow, some distant way, and you'll have this bond. And that's what happened with Shane. I mean, he was just this crazy Irishman. And by the end of our day together, we were somehow bonded in this way. And I think that happens a lot in Ireland. You know, in Ireland, I've come into villages where I met somebody in another village, and I come into the other village, and he, he just said, he's the, he's the plumber. So I come into the town, and I don't know his last name, and I go, uh, I'm looking for Eamon. And they go, oh, you want Eamon the carpenter or Eamon the plumber? You know, <laughs> and uh, it's that sort of little intimacy. And you almost understand why people are called, uh, you know, John Cooper and, and, and Thomas Carpenter, because in these villages, it's that intimate, and this guy has that little niche, and when you travel, you get to connect with that. For me, Ireland is so great because I just get this sensation that I'm understanding a foreign language and everybody just wants to talk to you and you can't hardly not meet the people. Uh, now, you met your wife in Ireland? We did. We met in the, in the west of Ireland. But the Irish, it's true, you just you say hello and they hear an American accent. And they go, ah, sure, you know, have a cousin in Poughkeepsie. Do you know him? <laughs> and off they go. And they, I, I just think that that happens all the time in Ireland. You know, in Ireland's very interesting because when they were very successful with the Celtic Tiger and all, they started to take on a different persona. I don't think people or countries get rich quick gracefully. Right. And now that Ireland is on its knees a bit again, the people seem in a certain way relaxed in a way and at home in themselves again. Yeah. I, I'm not sure how comfortable they were <laughs> being rich and, and gaudy. I think suffering suits them and they understand it and they know how to, they know how to suffer with the best of them. You're right. You know, because I have a friend who, the big deal was to hire a Polish person to do your hard work oh, yeah. during the Celtic Tiger. And he talked about his Polish made like a, an appliance, you know, and they weren't comfortable with that. And now they, they're not going to have that, right? I think that's true, and it was interesting. For, for a number of years, you would go to Ireland, because the people you meet when you travel around are usually in the service industry. It takes a while to sort of break that. So you were meeting a lot of Polish and Eastern European people when you went to Ireland, and now, once again, you're having an Irish experience. You walk in, yeah. and there are Irish people behind the counter and waiting your table. Mm -hmm. And so it's much more accessible, again, to have that authentic Irish experience now than it was, say, seven or eight years ago. All aboard for the sightseeing tour from Galway to Dublin. All aboard... Hold it, hold it, Mary Ann is coming up the street. Hold what? Put Mary Ann in the baggage car. I know. All aboard. I'm Rick Steves. We're speaking with Andrew McCarthy, and we're talking about travel writing. We're talking about uh, moving from being a movie star to being a travel writer, and why on earth you do that. And right now we're immersed in the wonders of the West of Ireland. You know, we can all go to the famous places and have a checklist of everything to see, but the mark of a good traveler to me is a traveler that finds an intimate slice of a new culture and... I just love the way your slice is basically a love story with brown soda bread. What is it about soda bread? <laughs> well, I think soda bread is so distinctly Irish. It was created early on when they lacked ingredients and they would put that bread soda in there. 
And there's something about the simple formula of soda bread that is so, it's just very distinctly Irish and it has a very specific taste. It's usually made best by the moms. You know, you can get it in fancy restaurants and it's fine and it's delicious. But when you taste the real deal, there's no denying it. And you suddenly, food does that, you know, I'm not a big foodie, but when you have a meal or something like that, that really is so indicative of a place, it grounds you in it in a way that is unlike any other. And I think Irish soda bread really captures that. Andrew McCarthy, tell me, just close your eyes now and stick a piece of soda bread in your mouth. How does it crumble? What's the taste it leaves in your mouth afterwards? Where does it take you? You just want more. <laughs> you want more. Slather yeah. some butter, some Kerrygold butter. Oh, on you got to have a lot of Kerrygold on it for sure. Oh, man. And Mary O'Callaghan brings another plate of it. Ah, Mrs. O'Callaghan, yep. She makes the best in the West. <laughs> you know, I've gotten Kerrygold here in the States, and it's not the same. It's like the Guinness. It doesn't, it doesn't travel. But <laughs> details of a place like that, like the soda bread, like the wind in the West and the mist and the rain, it just captures something about a place. And I mean, I can feel it now. I can feel the dew on my face, you know, and it, there's something so specific to place that I can't wait to get back. Andrew McCarthy, thanks so much for uh, sharing with us your craft of travel writing and your love of Ireland. And uh, we'll look for more of your work. Happy travels. Thanks, Rick. Never tire of the road. Never tire of the rolling wheel. Never tire of the ways of the world. Way out yonder's a calling me. And the dark road leads me onwards. And the highway, that's my code. And the lonesome voice that I heard in my head said, Never tire of the road. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Mac Dula at WMFE Orlando and to Larry Josephson and the crew at the Radio Foundation in New York for their studio help today. We also get web help from Andrew Wakeling and Robin Cronin and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com including links to our guests and a phone app with interviews from the show Just look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe package at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through England, Scotland, Ireland, and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of the best of Ireland, the best of Scotland, the best of England, and London. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, Visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.